0: You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for April 2017. Today's episode is titled, Making Right Decisions. If it works, do it. This seems to be the mantra of most organizations. Arguably, this pedestrian philosophy is the major metric commonly employed in making decisions. In part, this methodology reflects human limitations in understanding the complexities of the world and therefore our limited ability to forecast the future. Organizational leaders who are committed to a Christian worldview must develop a well-defined scripturally-based code of conduct and or statement of core values to guide the expected development of stakeholders and provide the primary metric for all organizational decisions. Pragmatism should never be the primary metric, but it can be a secondary metric. The primary metric must always be alignment with virtues that emanate from a Christian worldview. To deliver excellent products and services, organizational leaders must model and require a high level of compliance to the code of conduct or statement of core values by all stakeholders. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Walk the Talk, No Partiality.
1: Well, this morning I want to continue uh, the uh, teaching out of James on... uh, How to Walk Out the Reality of Christ in You, the Hope of Glory, or How to Walk as a Sanctified Believer in Jesus Christ. So I've titled this particular section, Walking the Talk, and specifically the issue of partiality. Partiality is a big deal in the cultures of today. It's about making distinctions that God does not make. Uh, There are distinctions that God does make, and we need to learn how to make those distinctions but the distinctions that God doesn't make, these are distinctions that man makes in and of himself, and those distinctions are inappropriate. You could call those distinctions of man that, where he's making distinctions independent of God, distinctions based on homo mensura, where man assumes that man is the measure and man has the right to make these distinctions. Whereas we believe that God, uh, makes the, is the measure of all things, so we ble- believe in uh, Days and this is God is the measure, and He His measurements are the correct measurements, and so distinctions made in alignment with Him are appropriate distinctions. In this particular section of James chapter two, verses one through thirteen, He's continuing the discussion that He started in chapter one about what what it is to truly be a worshipper of God, what it is to truly be a follower of Christ, and as someone who obeys the Word. So we're going to read this text and make a few comments about how this text illustrates the point. Of we need to make godly distinctions, not not worldly, or, or distinctions made, on, made based on home and syrup. So let me read the text, and we'll make a few comments and draw some application. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he, said, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged. Under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a little lengthier passage and obviously won't have time to get into as much depth as I've done in some of the prior teachings. But I think this is a, this is an opportunity to see the, the illustration or example of what it means to really walk the talk. What it means to really live a life based on a biblical worldview based on God being the measure of all things. You know, the world that we're in today is basically adopting the assumption that man is the measure of all things. We're trying to redefine everything. We're redefining marriage. We're redefining a a gender identity. We've redefined ethical standards. We've redefined murder. We're allowing women to abort babies, and we're saying that is not murder. We're redefining virtually everything, and certainly um, we're taking this whole separation of church and state to a whole new level of of redefinition. So all around us, we have homo mensura active in trying to redefine the culture. Well, Christians are called to live counterculture when the culture is not lined up with God, and we are definitely in that culture, and this is a worldwide phenomena today. So so James now is going to address this issue of walking the talk based on what he experienced in the first century. And what he experienced was a culture which was number one had various socioeconomic classes and people tended to show more respect for those that had money or appeared to have wealth over those that appeared to had have little or no wealth. And so that's the example that James is going to use to make his point here that you want to make distinctions according to God's standards, not according to man's standards. So, again, he says, my brothers, show no partiality. That is, don't make distinctions as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, which is another way to say as you hold on to a Christian worldview, don't make inappropriate distinctions. Okay, Make distinctions that are consistent with Christ. And they're obviously making these inappropriate distinctions because the culture all around them is making these distinctions. And then he uses a third-class condition. This is the Greek third-class condition is a condition that says something may happen or it may not happen. It's, it's hypothetical here. It may or may not happen, and it probably will happen. So that's a third-class condition. It probably will. A fourth-class condition is similar, except it probably won't happen. But in this case, the third-class suggestion, yeah, this is probably happening. So he offers this hypothetical here. If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, and this word for fine clothing means shiny clothing, and uh, that was the uh, way you knew people back in those days had wealth, they had clothes that were shiny. Uh, anyone that didn't have money couldn't afford shiny clothing they probably couldn't even clean their clothes very often so their clothes were very dingy and dirty and and uh, many times uh you know had holes in them and i know today we buy clothes with holes in them that's supposed to be a fashion statement but most of the time through history people have not viewed clothes with holes in them as a fashion statement it'd been a sign of poverty and that's the way it was then so if you have a man wearing a gold ring and, and shiny clothing, come into your assembly. And by the way, the word assembly used, he uses the word for synagogue here. He doesn't use ecclesia. That was very interesting, uh, which I think supports the concept that the, the book of James is probably an early epistle. And they had not really transitioned strongly into consistently using ecclesia to refer to the gathering of Christians. So he's still using the Old Testament terminology of synagogue. So when you have some of these people come into your assembly and you, you will, and you also have a poor man in shabby clothing also coming in. And if you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit down at my feet. Now see, so, so the scene here is you have someone in charge, someone who has some authority in this gathering watching people come into the gathering. And apparently there was some level of an open door. We don't know the level of details there because you got to remember in this first century, Christianity was persecuted. And as a persecuted worldview, then these people need to be very careful because they're very like, very subject to being arrested, being incarcerated, and maybe even killed. So they're, they're, they're obviously being careful. So we don't know for sure who these people are. It's just a hypothetical situation we don't even know if these people are necessarily believers but the point is they're using worldly metrics to make distinction here so it says here that this person that's at the door he turns to the the person that it looks rich to him and he gives him a command you see this word you said is actually a command he's directing him you said here in a good place that is a place that a place of honor a place where you know, only the the people that are, that are regarded as the most important people would sit. We have those in most of our gatherings today. We have places where we would view those places of honor. And we have our leaders sit in those places of honor. Well, that's what they're doing there. And uh so then he turns to the poor man, and he gives him a command as well. He says, you stand over there. That's one command he could have given. Or he might have given the command, you sit down at my feet. Uh, now this this whole term of being sitting down at my feet it really is to sit down at at my footstool. Now that was um, an allusion to uh, to military victories because back in those times the way that someone acknowledged that they were conquered is the conqueror literally had them get down on the ground and the conqueror would put their foot on their neck, and so that's the sense of this particular phrase here. He's using a military conquering term here. It's you're saying now to this poor person that I've conquered you. I am better than you. I've defeated you. I have control over you. You will do what I say. So it's that kind of partiality that's being, that's being contemplated here. So the, the, the command then is to either stand over there or you set as a conquered person, you know, under my feet. And James goes on to say, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves, and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, that is a rhetorical question. The implied answer is yes, you have become judges. You have made distinctions that God does not make. You've made distinctions based on external standards. God does not make distinctions like that. God makes distinctions based on your heart. Is your heart right with him or not? So he makes distinctions based on internal standards, not external standards. Then we have another imperative here. It says listen. Listen, my beloved brothers. Now listen is it's you know, we say the word listen unless you know it's imperative or you in English you, you speak it out with force, listen, listen to me, then you would know I'm giving you an imperative. But if I just say listen, that doesn't sound like an imperative. Well in the Greek language, they could give you an imperative without giving you a voice inflection. They give you imperative, imperative by virtue of the grammar. So listen here is the imperative mood. It's saying, hey, pay attention. I've got something to tell you. It's important. My beloved brothers, you know, anytime you see beloved brothers, it's normally, that's the word agapao and, uh, or agape. The agape is the noun version. Agapao is the word uh, form of it. Uh, and, uh, and love in scripture, it means sacrificial living. I'm sacrificing something to support the purpose of God in you. That's what love is. So listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? And you see, we have another rhetorical question with an implied answer. Yes, that's what God has done. Now, that's a very interesting thing there because that shows some partiality. It illustrates the fact that God does make distinctions, but His distinctions are for His purposes and for His glory. For example, you see this this distinction in First Corinthians chapter one, verses twenty six through twenty nine. It's refer, in this context, uh, Paul is writing about uh, the wisdom of the world, which is what the Greeks value, and versus uh, the wisdom of God, and talking about there's a big difference between you know wisdom based on worldly standards and wisdom based on divine standards. So part of God's plan and purpose of self-glorification is that he would actually choose to bring the things the world does not value to himself. Because in the end, the world's wisdom cannot solve the problems of the world. The world's wisdom cannot solve the problem of sin and death. has no answers. God solved the problem of sin and death through Christ. Christ is looked upon by the world as, as folly as being of, of no significance, and you see that even today. That's a common view. People don't view Christ as having any significance to them and to their lives. So basically you have a situation here where these people uh, are saying, or God is saying, that it's the foolish things of the world, the things the world doesn't value that I value, and those are the people I'm going to draw to myself. So his first argument against This kind of partiality that is not consistent with Scripture given in the book of James is to recognize how God works. God works by choosing the things that the world does not value, by redeeming the things the world doesn't value. And so when you recognize that, you say, oh, so whenever I mistreat or I inappropriately show preference for wealthy person over a poor person, I am out of line with God. I have missed what God is doing. So he goes on to offer some more arguments. But you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones who oppress you, the ones that drag you into court. So now you dishonor the poor man by by showing partiality against him, and you've honored people that actually persecute you, actually people that oppress you and take you into the courts. I mean, he's just arguing now from general revelation. Look at what's going on. Look at what they're doing. And he makes another argument from general revelation, and then he's going to make a third argument from Scripture, special revelation. So the next argument is, are not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called. These are the ones that are oppressing you. These are the ones that you are showing partiality to. These wealthy people are actually speaking ill. To blaspheme means to speak evil against someone. Evil meaning lies and deception. Saying things about Christ that are maliciously wrong. They're not true. That's happening today in our culture around the world today. As people are rejecting Christ as Lord, calling him just a man. Some people call him just a prophet. Some people say he was not even a good prophet. And so... We have this blasphemy happening. It's going on among people that have material wealth that think they have the answers to life and they don't need God. So you have two arguments from General Revelation that are telling him this partiality you're showing is out of order. But the real powerful argument comes from Scripture. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor yourself, which is the golden rule. We call the golden rule which comes out of Leviticus. Some people don't realize that that is actually where the golden rule is found, is out of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. It is a text from the Old Testament law that most of us don't know about. But when Jesus was asked what was the greatest command, he gave us the command that came out of Deuteronomy, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, Deuteronomy 6. And then he offered the second one. He wasn't asked the second one, he offered it. He said the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That came out of Leviticus 19. So this is where James goes. He goes to that what we call the golden rule. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is an argument now from Scripture. The reason that you should not show partiality like the world does based on worldly metrics is because that is not obedient to the golden rule. That violates the golden rule. Now, keep in mind, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to followers of Christ, telling them to obey an Old Testament law, which tells you, again, they did not have a separation of Old Testament and New Testament like we have today. Commonly today, people don't connect the two together. They view them as separate. I've heard people talk about, well, I don't even read the Old Testament because we're not under the law. Well, I'm sorry, you don't understand Christianity. Christianity comes from the Old Testament law. Now, you have to understand that what the Old Testament shows us is that man cannot ever do enough good works to be acceptable with God. So, therefore, we have to have Christ. So, Christ comes in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies to be obedient to the law and voluntarily die as our sacrifice to now pay the price that we could not pay to be, to be acceptable with God. And now he regenerates us through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we now enter into the state where we have received the benefits of the work of Christ. That's the past tense of salvation. And now we walk out in the present tense, the reality of being transformed into our new state. We are positionally saved when we come to Christ through regeneration. And now we're practically saved in in real time through the process of sanctification. And we will be ultimately saved through glorification when we go into the next existence so that's the salvation that we now understand that was not fully understand in the old testament but it was there in the old testament it was predicted in the old testament and therefore the old testament you know is very relevant to us today in understanding how to walk out the reality of being sanctified and grow up in christ so the old testament is very very relevant so he says you know you You've got to be obedient to the Old Testament, particularly he you notes know, the golden rule. But if you show partiality, in other words, distinctions according to human metrics, manly metrics that are not consistent with God, you are committing sin or convicted by the law as transgressors. Now he goes into a little parenthetical comment, and you'll see in the slide here, I have show it in in gray and put a parenthesis on here to make this point. He's kind of stopping his discussion for a moment to make this parenthetical comment for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it for he who says do not commit adultery also said do not murder but if you do not commit murder but do not commit adultery but you do murder you have become a transgressor of the law in other words the law required perfect compliance if you fail on one point your compliance is imperfect And therefore, you're guilty of it all. So that's the big point he wants to make. Because immediately, when when these people read this word uh, that they would be transgressors of the law, they're going to think, wait a minute, no, Christ has covered all that. That's what we would think today as well. That's what they thought. He said, no, you need to understand something. The law's requirement required everything to be obeyed perfectly. So you can be a transgressor today. And of course, that should drive you immediately to Christ and for the grace of Christ in your life. Because the reality is, again, we can never do enough good works. We can never do it completely well enough. We'll never succeed at that. That is a big theme of the Old Testament. So now he's he's saying, okay, you know, you need to recognize we have a mandate we're under that is treat others the way we want to be treated. That's the greatest reason you don't show partiality. But in addition, you need to know from General Revelation. These people are taking you to court. They're oppressing you. Furthermore, they're blaspheming the name of Christ, and you bear his name. The word Christian means a follower of Christ. You bear his name. So they blaspheme him. They're blaspheming you. So you see these three arguments are made here for why you should not show partiality based on external metrics, which are the metrics of the world. So now comes the final imperative here. So speak and act. These are imperative. These are verbs in the imperative mood in the Greek language. Speak and act as those who will be, who are to be judged. Now this particular, the way it's been phrased in English is really not very good because it's really this word judge is a verb in the present tense. And the Greek present tense is pre, it means present continuous action. So it would probably be better to say, so speak and act as those who are Being continually judged by the law of liberty. And most of us don't think of any law as a law of liberty, particularly the Old Testament law. We think law is bondage. He said, no, no, law, being obedient to Scripture, being living according to a biblical worldview, which is the faith that, that we should have in Christ, means to live under the law of liberty, which means that Scripture, the mandates of Scripture, when we obey them, they free us from sin. They progressively free us from sin. That's how it's the law of liberty. And then he, fi- he concludes with a final statement that some of the commentators have noted is, is a little bit difficult because it's kind of more of a saying that apparently was popular uh during that day. And so we have to be very careful with this because this can be easily misused. He says, first, that judgment without mercy is without mercy to one who show no mercy, meaning that in the kingdom, God reciprocates. If you don't show mercy, no mercy will be shown to you. That's the law of reciprocity, and that's how God works in the kingdom. So, you know, you want to you want to be careful about your distinctions. You want to do distinctions that God would make, because God is a God of mercy. He's also a God of accountability, and those seemingly Polar opposite values have to be held in tension. There are times for mercy and times for accountability. But if all you do is issue accountability, never have mercy, then uh, that's how it's going to be, you know, how you're going to be evaluated, how you're going to be held accountable. So that's a very important kingdom point. And then the final phrase here, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's probably a fairly poor translation. He's, I think he, what he's saying here is because of the work of Christ, Mercy is the bias over judgment. God is biased to mercy. If he wasn't biased to mercy over judgment, he wouldn't have sent Christ. That, I think, is the point. The fact that he sent Christ says his bias is to mercy over judgment. And I've heard people really abuse this. I actually said in a meeting one time and heard a church leader try to justify the sin, the egregious sin of another church leader saying mercy triumphs over judgment. I thought that was a gross misapplication of what James is saying, but that uh, leader was not correctable. So we didn't get anywhere with that, but it was it really was glaring to me that someone would try to use it that way. So this thing can be very misused and abused, so we got to be very careful with this. You know, scripture, many scripture times scripture is very clear, and sometimes it's not clear. You want to be very cautious on things that are not clear. And don't, don't make big decisions, big critical decisions with unclear text. And so that, that particular leader was trying to make a big decision with unclear text. By the grace of God, he did repent, but he never apologized to me for what he did, but he did repent and that's all that matters. I, I don't, I don't expect an apology from him, but I was grateful he repented and we were able to make a good decision in the end. I think a g- godly decision. We've got to learn to walk the talk, and walking the talk is making distinctions that God makes, not making distinctions based on metrics that God does not embrace. The world tends to embrace worldly metrics, metrics based on externals, not based on internals. God looks at the heart. Man looks at the external circumstances of life. God is always concerned about our motives. Our, where our heart is our agendas you know our faith in him our trust in him so may we have the grace to walk with him and sh- and make the distinctions he makes and not get deceived into the distinctions that man illicitly makes in jesus name amen